Good morning. I'm going to need a little bit more than that this morning from you guys because we've changed it up on you. I know that all of you read your newsletter and you know that this morning our format's a little different. I'm going to be giving you part of the message right now and then we'll sing a little bit and then I'll give you the rest of the message later in the morning. And so you're probably already tracking with me, but I just need a little bit more um, eye contact, interaction. I need to know you're awake. I know it takes a little while. So I'm going to say good morning again. And then you're going to say like it right back to me and I'm going to know you mean it. Are you ready? Good morning. Oh, I love it. We are ready. We have finished the Joseph series. We're kind of finished with the Joseph series. I've had these weird thoughts as I've studied Joseph and studied the fact that he lived his life with accountability, with humility, with integrity, um, and what that looks like in a life of uncommon faith. And I was actually thinking about and have been thinking about a story that's the opposite of a life of uncommon faith. As a matter of fact, there are two lives that um, really lacked a, a depth and a faithfulness and it's almost so obvious and, and communicated in such a way that's tragic in this story. I want to share it with you this morning. Now, this is a story of Jesus, a parable, and a parable is a story that's laid alongside a point. The parable never really happened. Jesus, Jesus really told it, but it's a story that never really happened. He made up a story to share a point that's absolutely true and part of scripture. And in Luke chapter 15, we see that Jesus told three parables. He told them in a row because he was mad. He was irritated at the church. He was irritated at the church because the church had a heart that had grown cold toward people who didn't know Jesus. And so I want to jump right in to Luke chapter 15, and I want to show you why Jesus was irritated. Then we're going to dive into the story that he told. And I hope by the end of the time today, not only are you going to be challenged to live differently, but I think you'll understand without any question what our church is all about, why we do what we do, why we pray for and about what we pray for and about why we invest the money that we give so generously to the Lord, why we invest the way we do. I think it'll bring some context this morning. I know it will be challenging and I trust that God will work in you like he has in me all week long. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now it doesn't look like a whole lot when you just read it in English. But literally what this is saying is that there were crowds of people growing in number that continued to gather around Jesus every time he taught. And there were tax collectors, which stood for a group of people that stood for crime, depravity, people that just looked like they were far from God. Then there were another category or was another category of people, and that was called sinners. And um, that was everybody else. They didn't go to church, basically every other person who didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus as you and I would understand it today. And because Jesus was hanging out with people who looked like they were far from God and also people who may not look like they were quite as far from God. And it's impossible to tell by looking at somebody, but yet they were far from God. He was being criticized by the very people who should have the heart of God and they did not. So Jesus got irritated and he told three stories. The first story and the second story were about a shepherd that lost a sheep and they went and found the sheep and there was a celebration. A woman who lost a coin, she went and found the coin and there was a celebration. The third story is a story that has been considered by some to be the very best story ever written, short story. By people who write short stories, it's certainly one that challenges us. You have heard it before, even us, we together in the last six years have covered this two different times in different ways. And today I know is gonna be a way that's not only fresh, 
but challenging right to our core. So let's look at this together as you and I dive in in Luke chapter 15. Let's go on to Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now, there were people listening to Jesus, a crowd. There were people who were sinners, everyone who didn't go to church, right? Whatever, that was their category. And I wouldn't call people that. That's what, you know, people who wanted to, to make people a point. That's what they called them. There were people who looked like they were far from God, people who were far from God, but didn't look like it. And then there were a lot of people who felt like they were very close to God. Some were, some weren't, a whole diverse group of people. And, and as Jesus continued, he said, there's a man who had two sons. and Everybody's nodding their head. The younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Now to you, this may not sound like a lot, but this was as scandalous as scandalous could possibly be in first, the first century and before in Jewish life. Inheritance was given two ways. The older son would receive two thirds of the family's wealth when the father died. A younger son, if there were two, would receive one third. They were not to spend the inheritance. They were not to sell the property. They were to invest themselves in the family business and to continue to support not just the servants of the father, but the brothers and sisters and their husbands and their wives and to continue the business for generations and generations. And so when this young son came to his father and he said, give me my share of the inheritance, not only was it culturally crazy, in a sense, he was saying to his father, you're dead to me. Now, when I talk about the prodigal son, one of my biggest concerns is that it seems familiar to you. You think you know the story. You think you got it. And you think you're not him. So it doesn't apply. But I believe that there are many, many different ways in our lives that we say to God, the father, you're dead to me. Now you may not say, God, I want you to die, but we live like God is dead by compartmentalizing and segmenting our lives, keeping certain things for ourselves and perhaps giving God those things that aren't quite so hard for us to give. You say, like what? Well, let me give you some examples. Some of us, we say, God, you're dead to me in my finances. What's that look like? my money. I'll spend it the way I want to. Why in the world would you tell me what to do with my money, God? Every once in a while, I'll tip you if I'm happy with you, but stay out of my business. Knowing what we should do with our finances, yet choosing not to do it. God, you're dead to me. Your career, some people separate what we do for a living, our vocation and our life with Jesus. Well, I go to church, maybe I'll serve, I'll do this, I'll pray at least before I eat my meals and maybe before I go to bed, but what I do for a living, are you kidding me, God? That's different, that's my business. I'll take care of that, you take care of this, I'll meet you sometimes on Sunday and we're good, God, you're dead to me. Our relationships. The Bible tells us over and over and over again, we become like the people we choose to keep closest to us. The Bible talks about dating relationships. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever because it'll end up being destructive for you and destructive for them. It makes it difficult. It makes it complicated. Yet we often tell God, I'll hang out with whoever I want. I'll date whoever I want. God, I'm gonna do it my way. In this part of my life, you're dead to me. Sexuality. Well, God, I mean, I'm gonna be a good church person, but what I choose to do with my body, are you kidding me? The, 
the rules in the Bible, well, they're old. They can't certainly apply today in our progressive society. I'll have sex with who I want to have sex with. And that part of my life, God, you're dead to me. Our time, it goes on and on and on and on. And so we look at this story and I hope as it has me this week, I hope you begin to get interested. I hope it begins to suck you in. I hope you can see yourself, maybe not currently, although perhaps, but previously identifying with this younger son. So Jesus is getting the people's attention. They're tracking. And I hope I have yours. So he divided his property between them, the dad did. Now, how would he do that? It seems easy enough, right? Takes his bank account, writes him a check. But this literally, it wasn't money in the bank. This was literally stuff. This was literally livestock. It was servants who had been passed down from one generation to the next. It was property. And you couldn't, you couldn't just take it and you couldn't sell it. First of all, it was against the law because the father could not release his assets until he was dead. He could, in some cases, with sons that showed a lot of promise, he could say, listen, this is your two thirds. This is my third. You can manage it. I'll help you manage it. We'll kind of do this together. Once I'm dead, you can make a living off of it. As a matter of fact, there's two different words for inheritance. The one that's used in the New Testament is the kind that you and I would think about. And this is not just the money of the father, but it's the household of the father, the business. And the intention is that you continue to keep going what it is the father has started to be responsible for and to provide for the people around you. And that word isn't used here. When the son says, give me my inheritance, he's using a word that's only used here. And he's saying, just give me the cash. But he couldn't get the cash because it wasn't allowed in his culture. So he had to go to a ruthless pawnbroker who would buy a future with pennies on the dollar. And he would say, I get it. Your dad's told you this is your one third. Even though I can't touch it till your dad dies, I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar for what it's worth. I'm willing to wait till your dad dies. Here's the cash. When your dad dies, I'll come make that part of my estate. So this was a big deal. When the son tells the father, I want my stuff, I'm gone. Such a big deal that the people in the village would have had a ceremony complete with a funeral, symbolizing and signifying that that son is dead and gone and never to return. This was serious business. And like I have your attention now, I hope, Jesus had the people's attention who were listening to him. Not long after that, the younger son got together everything he had and he set off for a distant country. Now you can picture a kid, a teenager with a few hundred thousand dollars heading to Vegas. How long is it going to last, right? Well, sure enough, that's sort of what's happening here. And a distant land, it doesn't mean somewhere exotic. It just means somewhere outside of Israel, right? In a non-Jewish land where the bad people live. Uh, it's, it's, I guess, like going to Vegas and staying on the strip and looking for the things that, you know, you probably wouldn't want to look for and doing the things that you may not want to do. And so he did this. He got together everything he had. He took off for a distant country. Then he squandered everything. And sometimes for you and I, we can realize that we made a mistake quickly and we can invite God back in. Sometimes it takes a while. And then sometimes something happens totally outside of our control 
that reminds us that God is God and that we are not. You might say you don't run. I said it. God, I, I don't run. But let me suggest to you that a definition of running could be every time I search for unconditional love or personal fulfillment where it can't be found. We run. When you run, I have a hard time with this one because I wish it wasn't true. God will often let us. I kind of wish he wouldn't let me run. But I was asking him about that earlier this week and saying, God, how come when we run, when we decide we want to make these decisions, how come you let us make these decisions? And I was thinking about getting married, December 30th, 1989. It's been a long time. 80s are still my favorite decade. December 30th, 1989 was my favorite day. And let's just say, as Joy and I did, we love each other. And let's just say that I told my wife, and I did, I want to be with you forever. I want us to hang out together. I want us to have kids together. I want us to grow old together. I want us to spend as much time together as we possibly can. And Joy's like, right on, let's get married. That sounds good to me. So we did. But what if I said to her, you know, I don't really trust you. I think you're well-intended. I think you're probably going to be faithful. I think you're gonna do the things that I ask you to do or the things that you ask me to do, I'll do. I think we have that trust, that basis, I think. But here's what I'm gonna do, just because I'm not sure. I'm gonna put some locks on our doors of our house. And I'm not gonna give you the key. And when I leave, I'm gonna lock you in there and I'm gonna lock it up so you can't go. And I don't want you to take it personally, but you're gonna to have to stay there while I'm gone. And then when I come back, you and I can hang out. And then when I leave, I'm gonna lock you in again. Do you think my wife would like that? That's not called love, it's called slavery. But what's love? Love is staying because you've chosen to, because you want to, because you love. Sometimes God lets us run. Number two, God won't always shield us from the consequences of our choices even though I wish he would. But just like a good parent, sometimes he allows us to feel the weight or at least part of the weight of the decisions we make. If he didn't, it would be neglect. If you're running from God, God does not see you as broken. You're a child, which can't be right. We can't heal and we can't overcome until we come home. All right, let's keep moving. After this kid had spent everything, there was a severe famine. Here it comes, the thing you can't control. A severe famine in that whole country. And for the first time in his life, he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. 
I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him in desperation, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to the father. And you may say, well, I had a good dad. My dad would probably forgive me if I did that. Or maybe you're saying, I didn't have a good dad. My dad would hate my guts by now. Or maybe you don't know. But there were at least three reasons why this prodigal son would have been scared to death to go home. The first was just flat out rebellion. But getting to the end of ourselves, our own resources, and then the famines of life, the times that remind us that we're not in control, at some point we get to the end of our rebellion, friends, and we have to stop. Some of us are so stubborn, it takes so long, but eventually we get to the end. The second reason is fear. And you may say, well, I would be a little afraid to talk to my dad, but I wanna show you a passage from Deuteronomy that was at least talked about in Jewish culture when a son disrespected his father like this son did. And this is hardcore. I mean, you read Deuteronomy, you scratch your head and you're like, oh my goodness, thank you for Jesus because the rules have changed. If someone has a stubborn or rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother, I would have said, yeah, that's me. My boys are pretty good boys. But at some point raising them, they would have fallen into this category. I would have too. My dad's probably watching right now. You know, it happens if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him. His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. So he was afraid. But I think the third reason, and maybe the most significant reason, is shame. The Jewish people in Jesus' day, and Jesus wasn't part of this, they were professional shamers. And they love to point out the sins of others. And the custom would be in Jesus' day for a son to have taken off and said to his father, I wish you were dead. For the townspeople to make absolutely sure that the shame never left this brother, that they protected the father from this boy for as long as it took, no matter what it took. And the Talmud tells us that they had a ceremony and the ceremony of shame. Well, they did this ceremony when they thought somebody might be trying to come home. They took a pot and they had a recipe. This ceremony had a name, it was called the kazaza, fun to say, but not so fun if you're the recipient of this ceremony. They whipped up this concoction of the nastiest smelling stuff that you could ever imagine. 
everything they could find that would stink so badly that you could not literally be in the same room with it and they put it in a pot. And then as the person trying to come home, back into the village, got near, the leader of this gang of shame would come up to them with the pot and all of the liquid, blocking the path to the father, smash it on the floor, symbolizing the fact that the relationship is broken forever. The nasty water spilling out, filling the nostrils of everybody present, letting them know how vile the sin of the shamed one was, would not let the father come home or the son come home. So this son, he had reason to be afraid. He didn't know. But we have the benefit of being able to read the story. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son so that the crowd could not get to his son first, protecting his son, forgiving his son, showing the love that he had for his son. He ran to him and threw his arms around him and kissed him, saying, you are forgiven, you are protected, you are loved. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to listen to a song that Brian and the worship team are gonna play. And if you've found yourself having drifted from God, either you've run away from him, you've slipped away from him, or perhaps there are parts of your life that you're keeping from him. And you know this morning is the morning to come home showing you the heart of the Father. Let's listen to the words of the song. And I want to encourage you to come home. Just sit where you are and listen to this song with me, please. How faintly I remember your love song over me. But further For you
Well, we've seen the heart of the Father. And no matter how broken you feel your life is or how broken somebody may have told you that you are, that you know that you can always come home. So my question is, how is your heart toward people who may be far from God? Now, you can't tell who's far from God by looking at them. But I wanna know how you feel What's your heart toward people who may be far from God? In some cases, people who have drifted far from the Lord or even run from God, they have reasons that seem reasonable and in some context, even good, logical. In some cases, maybe it's just outright rebellion or temper tantrums, perhaps somewhere in between, but we're going to look now at the father, but yet also at the older brother. And this is where many of us have to be even more careful. Because oftentimes we don't see ourselves as the older brother, but we are. The son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Now just sort of as a parenthetical note, something to slide in here to help frame the rest of this story. God did not design our lives to be about us. I wanna say it again. God did not design your life to be about you. We have to be very, very careful that we don't make everything about us, that we don't become entitled, expecting, demanding, temper tantrum throwing, childish, so-called Christians, when things don't go our way. If we get angry and throw temper tantrums when things don't go our way, then perhaps it suggests that we follow God for the stuff and not for the relationship, for the love. Let's take a look at the older brother because if we're not careful, we can become him. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field doing what he was supposed to do, what he'd always done. And here's a little interesting fact. It's possible to serve God without really being in fellowship with God. It's possible for the most churchy looking, busy people who seem to have it all together to be as far or further from God as the little brother who just puts it out there. This older brother, this son was in the field When he came near the house, I think this is hilarious. He heard the music and got mad. That never happens in church. He heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked them what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, Father, it's all about me. Don't you see everything that I've done for you? I deserve more than you're giving me. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you didn't even give me a little goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes <laughs> comes home, how did he even know that, by the way? He must have been following him on social media or something. I mean, the brother was in a far off land. You know, this guy's maybe he's just assuming. You killed the fatted calf for him. There are two people who were really sad the brother came home. One was the older brother. The other was the fatted calf, right? If you don't see your own need for grace, more than you see the need for grace in the people around you, you become the older brother. And let me presume to speak for God. If we are the older brother, God does not care one bit about our opinion. If we don't see our own need for grace, more than we see the need for grace in the people around us, if we're too busy judging everyone else that we can't see how broken and dependent we are, we have become the older brother. The older brother did everything right, except he had a wrong relationship with his other brother who seemed to be far from God. And because of that, it caused him to have a wrong relationship with the father because his heart was judgmental, bitter, and proud. I want you to listen with me to a narrative from a book that I didn't write, What's So Amazing About Grace. And then I want to explain to you where we fit in this story. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just north of Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They've grounded her a few times, and she boils with rage inside. I hate you! She screams as she slams the door on her father after an argument, and that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers at home report in graphic detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that that is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but never Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the coolest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, and arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, and a year. The man with the cool car, she now calls boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture in a store window when the headline reads, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body piercings, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody snitches in Detroit. 
After a year, the first signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still spends her nights with those older men, but it doesn't pay much, and all the money goes to support her addiction. When winter arrives, she finds herself sleeping anywhere slightly warm and out of the wind. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never drop her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to cry. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She's strung out and needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers, hoping to stay warm. Suddenly, there's a jolt in her memory and a single image fills her mind. She remembers May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once. She's there with her golden retriever dashing through row after row of blooming trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. Now she's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three calls in a row, and three times it goes straight to voicemail. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I'll guess I'll stay on the bus till it hits Canada. It takes about nine hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town, or they miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they got the message, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault, it's mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with the lights on since Bay City. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. Every so often, there's a sign posting the miles to Traverse City. Oh, God, what am I doing? She thinks as it gets closer and closer. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a cranky voice over the microphone. Fifteen minutes, folks. That's all we got here. Fifteen minutes to decide her life? She checks herself in the compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stain on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenarios that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs of the bus terminal, stands a group of 40. Her brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother who weathered the cold to see her. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a giant banner that reads, Welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. 
My son, the father said to you, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. It's not enough for you and I just to not be the younger brother. It's not enough for us to just not be the older brother. What you and I have to make sure of is that we have the heart of the father. And if we don't, we've missed the point. So I told you at the very beginning of our time together that I would remind you what we are all about, why we do what we do, why we talk about the things we talk about, why we budget the way we do, why we pray for the things we pray for. And it's really simple. Capital City Church exists to be the party at the bus station. We plan for it, we prepare for it, we pray for it, we preach about it, we participate in it so that we can celebrate when any person comes home. Father, thank you for my friends. And I thank you. For